Hello there. This is week number 50. Week number 50, December 11 through December 17th. We are here in the book of Revelation and reading through the New Testament. Only a few more weeks left uh, before the new year, and we uh, head towards uh, another uh, walk through the scriptures um, through the Old Testament uh, next year. So, But we're wrapping up now the New Testament. So thank you for joining us. Uh, it, it's good to have you here. We're going to be reading this week through Revelation chapter 8 through Revelation chapter 12. Now, as you've been reading through the book of Revelation, right, we've been going through it a little bit, you realize it's a very visual, symbolic book with a lot of images. And that's that's important because as you read the book of Revelation, you need to understand that it's a book that is intentionally written in this way. It's written with imagery, with pictures, with symbols that are not meant to be taken in a sense literally. They are meant to be taken as they're communicated, right? So, um, you know, so for instance, um, you know, all of the, the imagery that we see there is meant to communicate truth to us. Uh, beyond simply um, the bare symbols. And we would we would be wrong to take, for instance, you know, when Jesus is pictured with a sword coming out of his mouth, we're not, we're not supposed to believe that Jesus, the incarnate Lord, literally has a sword for his in his mouth, right? That is meant to communicate something about the word of God, which we learn in Hebrews, right? That it is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, Um all of these images are meant to convey and communicate to us something profound and important and biblical truth about Jesus and God, uh, the, you know, the triune God that we serve, what it means to be his people, and so on. Additionally, as you've been reading, I don't know if you've been, re- you've been noticing uh, words or pictures or uh, terms or ideas that you think, have I heard that before? And probably you have, because really, the book of Revelation is, in in many ways, um, it is quite inspired and takes the ideas and the pictures and the themes that are found in the whole rest of the Bible, in the the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in all the prophets, in the old, all of the imagery of the Old Testament and all of the new truth that's come in Jesus Christ in the New Testament is all now found in this revelation of Jesus Christ to John. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. John is not creating brand new stuff in the sense of this is stuff that has no uh, continuity with what came before. Now, it is genuinely, uh, it is more truth being added and further elaborated and progressing and building upon what's come before. But it's not so new in the sense that we haven't seen these ideas, these pictures, these themes, these people before. All of these images and imagery are rooted in Old Testament pictures and paintings to us of who God is, who we are as his people, what it means to live in this world, and who our Savior is, Jesus Christ. So uh, as you read the book of Revelation, read the book of Revelation with the rest of the Bible. As you read the book of Revelation, ask yourself, where have I heard this before? And chances are, 
you're probably going to find it. Um, you probably one of the most one of the easiest places to go find probably a lot of stuff is going to be in books like Ezekiel or Isaiah, um, books like that where you're going to find stuff um, and imagery that you're going to say, "Oh yeah." No, I, I remember that now, or words or phrases, um, ideas, and, and the prophets in the Old Testament, you'll find it there. It's rooted there. Now, maybe it's going to be in, in different words or whatever, but you're gonna, you'll are gonna you see, oh my goodness, this message is the same message that's in the Old Testament, and now it's being, in a sense, brought to its final conclusion in Scripture now. So that's why, by the way, you notice um, we're going to get there. Uh, Revelation chapter uh, 22, the very last chapter, you notice what it ends with? It ends with the tree of life, the tree of life with its healing leaves, and it ends with the rivers. Well, gee, where have I heard about the tree of life and rivers before? At the very beginning of the book in Eden. So everything that was lost in the first Adam is more than regained in the second Adam. And that's what this book is all about, really. It's about Christ, his salvation, what he's done for us, and what we get in him. Okay, so here we are in chapter 8. We're reading about the seventh seal, the golden censer, these trumpets, and so on. And so we're going to be reading through all of these symbolic images again. And one of the things you also might notice is the number of sevens. There is one argument that I, I personally think has a lot of merit to it that you'll notice there is the revelation goes in cycles. And what it seems to be doing is it goes through sevens. And so you got seven seals, seven trumpets. Um, and what it seems to be doing is going through the same stuff, in a sense, in different ways. And, and one way to explore this and to think about this is whenever you watch um, a football game on TV. Whenever we watch a play happening in a football game, we see it, we've got the basic broadcast feed, right? We're up above and we can see the whole play down below, right? And we're looking at it, we can see the offense, the defense, and oftentimes the, the, the camera always is keeping us in the in, in focused on the quarterback and if he hands it off to the running back, then we follow the running back. But it's not usually, the camera is not usually automatically zooming to the back of the defense where the defensive backs are at, is it? It's, it's focusing on one area, and it's, it's trying to give us an understanding of what's going on. But that one camera angle can't explain the whole thing that's going on, the whole play. So what do we have? We have instant replay. And sometimes we have different camera angles. And so we, we look at it from this angle and that angle, especially if there's a, a play that they need to review. Maybe uh, the quarterback lost the ball and fumbled, and they're, and they're wondering, was, was that really a fumble? Was that an incomplete pass? Was he down? Etc. And they go through all these different angles, and you'll even see the commentators say, oh, let's take this angle really is gives us a view that we didn't have before. And, oh, I didn't know that before because now we've got the angle this specific camera angle and perspective. This is, this is basic in football. And, and similarly, that's what John is doing here. He's giving us, and, and Christ is giving to John and through him to us, he's giving us different camera angles of what it looks like for us as the people of God to live in this world and yet to have what is going on with heaven and earth and Christ, his people, 
in this world with being opposed by Satan and the world. And he's looking at this this one play, so to speak, this one game, this one reality from all sorts of different angles. Now, it always ends the same way with Christ winning, but he's looking at it from all sorts of different perspectives, different um, uh, angles, uh, and, and that's what's going on here. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, you'll notice and you'll say, why are we going through all these seven sevens and, and what's all going on here? And that's really what's going on, I think, is we're looking at the same thing from different perspectives and then we're getting different insights into what's going on at these different places and in different ways of what's going on in this whole thing and the whole and if you want to think about it what is the whole game the whole game really is in a sense all of redemptive history the whole everything since the fall but especially between Christ's first and second coming we're getting a picture of what this whole thing looks like between Christ's first advent and his second advent now we go here into uh, in chapter eight, and we open up here in verse one, and it says this: When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is what Horatius Bonar has to say about this passage here, Revelation 8, 3 through 5, about this all-fragrant incense. He says this, The first verse here speaks of the seventh seal and its opening. At its opening, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. As if in the prospect of some great event about to happen, all heaven was silenced, only for a brief space, but still silenced. Its praise ceased. Its service was suspended. And all its worshipers were fixing eye and ear upon something which God was about to do. The hush of heaven's perpetual music, its everlasting song, was something awful. The 65th Psalm illustrates this. Praise waiteth is silent for thee, O God in Zion. The songs of the sanctuary cease for a season. All is still, no voice is heard of priest or people. Then prayer goes up. Unto thee shall the vow be performed. Just, just as in our text, when the much incense goes up with the prayers of all saints. After that, all flesh fall down before him. They confess sin. The chosen ones go in and approach to God. Then by terrible things in righteousness, God answers as in our text. Such seems to be the meaning of the silence in heaven. As Eliphaz says, Job 4.16, there was silence. And then I heard a voice. The second verse intimates the great event or events for which heaven was silent. God was coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the world for their iniquity. Isaiah 26, 20. His people had gone into their chambers and shut their doors about them, and God was coming forth for vengeance. The seven angels who stand before God, nearest to God, receive their trumpets, the sounding of which is to bring woe upon, upon, an, woe, upon woe on an impenitent earth. What follows from the third verse to the fifth is the first part of the great trumpet scene, or rather the preface to it, the intimation of the terrors in store for earth, the earnest of what is coming, a few drops of the fiery shower, 
the shower of divine wrath, long pent up, but poured out at last. First of all, look here at the altar, the angel and the altar. It is the altar that stood in the holy place that is here referred to in the third verse, not the brazen altar. It is the golden altar, the altar of incense, the altar of prayer and praise, the altar at which the priests ministered and where also blood was sprinkled. In what respects it differed from the mercy seat, as the place of prayer does not quite appear. At this altar, all who are God's priests, all his royal priesthood officiate. Here specially they stand, as pleaders with God, as intercessors on behalf of his own or against his enemies. To this altar the angel comes, not one of the seven, and here he takes his stand for a special purpose. Who he is and what is his name we know not. Only once is the name of an angel, Michael, mentioned in this book, in chapter 12, verse 7. All other angels are without name to us, though not without name to God. Strange that so many angels should be spoken of and no names given. Why he comes to the altar appears from what follows. It is priestly work that he has to perform. Secondly, look at the angel and the, and the censor. He comes to act as priest and priestly messenger from God. At once an angel was seen over Jerusalem with a sword, so here he is seen with a censer. God puts into the hands of one a sword, and of another a censer, as the occasion calls for. The angel is one of those who minister in heavenly places, among heavenly things, which were the pattern of the earthly. And he stands at the incense altar with a golden, symbol of what is divine and heavenly, censer in his hands. He has a special errand to discharge. His fellows are about to sound their trumpets of judgment, and like Aaron and Hur of old, he goes to prepare the way for the avenging of God's people upon the Amaleks of the last days. He goes to awake the slumbering cry of the church. How long wilt thou not judge? Avenge me of my adversary. God has sent him on his errand and given him the judgment, the golden censer. That censer is the link or connecting rod between the throne of God and the judgments upon the earth. The vengeance is that of the anointed king of Zion, but the introduction of that vengeance is the interposition of the priest above. Thirdly, look at the angel and the incense now. It is not empty censer that he holds. It is not for show that he waves it. Incense is there. Incense not his, but supplied by another, though by whom it is not said, there was given him. It is much incense, or literally many incenses, out of which were to come innumerable wreaths of fragrant smoke. This incense was to be offered with or laid upon so as to cover or envelop the prayers of all saints. Yes, all saints from Abel downwards. For this seems to be the gathering into one of all prayers from the beginning, that at length they may be answered. Upon the golden altar in front of the throne, the prayers of the saints of all ages have been laid. There they have accumulated. The unanswered, how long's not forgotten? At length upon this wondrous heap is poured the heavenly incense, and the whole contents thus mingled together upon the golden altar rise up to God in one fragrant cloud. The evil odor of what is earthly and fleshly and sinful and unbelieving in these prayers being so absorbed in the divine fragrance as utterly to disappear and leave nothing behind but the sweet savor of that heavenly incense, which like the precious spikenard in Bethany fills the chambers above and going up in its sweetness to the throne and to him who sitteth thereon prevails to draw down at length the long deferred answers to the prayers of the ages. Fourthly, now the angel in the fire. The angel, having emptied the censer of its incense, fills it with fire. 
the pouring out of the one from the censer being the signal for the coming in of the other into that vessel from which the incense had been poured out. The fire that succeeds the incense, and which is the effect of that incense, is not to remain in the censer. The half an hour's silence is all the time allowed for this transaction. This giving of the incense, this pouring out of the incense upon the altar, this filling of the censer with the devouring fire of judgment. Half an hour for this symbolic prayer. Half an hour for this imparting of power and excellence to the prayers that had been lying on the altar. The long pent-up judgments are the answer. Terrible things in righteousness. First, the voices and thunderings and earthquake. The prelude and earnest of something more terrible. The seven trumpets with all their fullness of devastation and woe. The fire of the altar did the terrible work of vengeance, but the prayers of the saints were the true and irresistible cause. They prevailed. Hitherto they have lain dormant on the altar. Now they awake, and forthwith the mighty works of God's judgment and mercy show themselves in the earth. The arm of the Lord is revealed. The unanswerable prayers get a more abundant answer, and God is now seen doing exceeding abundantly above all we have asked or thought. The whole machinery or instrumentality of judgment is now set in motion. There is delay no longer. The seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. They had stood in silence before God, waiting for the signal. They had received the trumpets, but till the incense is poured on the altar and the fire is shaken out from the censer, they must not use them. Now their successive blasts fill the air and the effects are stupendous. Many lessons are here. 1. Prayer remains often long unanswered. Days, months, and ages it may lie unanswered, yet not one petition shall fall to the ground. The reasons for the long delay are often far beyond our reach. But in the end, they will be found infinitely wise and gracious. He answered her, not a word. Matthew fifteen twenty three is a sentence which the saints of God have often pondered and which the history of the church has in all ages illustrated. Delays and delays there have been till hope deferred made the heart sick. But the hearer of prayer well knows what he is doing. Secondly, prayer is not lost. It lies on the golden altar, which is before the throne. We lay each petition there, as we say, for Christ's sake. We have entered the tabernacle, we have passed the brazen altar, and, accepting the sacrifice there, we have been accepted. We go into the inner altar and lay our prayers upon its gold, where there lie heaps upon heaps of prayers waiting for their answer. Not one petition, even the poorest or feeblest, has dropped from that altar, or been swept away, or lost in the process of time. All, all are there. In themselves... They are poor, having no fragrance, fragrance, but their intrinsic imperfection cannot change the nature of that altar on which they are laid. There they are preserved, each sigh, each tear, each cry, from child or aged man, from the chief of sinners, from the thief upon the cross, from the chamber of weakness and sorrow, from the crushed spirit and the broken heart. There they are, the groanings that cannot be uttered. The God be merciful to me, a sinner, the how long of the tortured martyrs, the moan of the suffering saint upon his tossing sickbed. There they are, the father's prayer, Lord, save my child, the child's prayer, Lord, save my father. There they are, the pleadings for the church of God, for the overthrow of Antichrist, for the binding of Satan, for the deliverance of earth, for the consummation of the eternal purpose. Not one cry lost, not one petition gone astray, all there. Thirdly, prayer will be answered. 
Sooner or later, every petition will receive its true and proper answer. An answer that will satisfy the petitioner to the full. An answer from him who is able to do exceeding abundantly all above all we ask or think. There is no such thing as unanswered prayer. Delay will only add to the fullness of the answer and increase our joy when it comes. And it will come. He is faithful that promised. He cannot deny himself. Fourthly, the answer will come in connection with Christ's surpassing excellence. His fragrance is to be cast upon these long-lying prayers that seem without life or motion, and they shall arise. Lazarus, come forth, will be heard again, and the prayers of ages shall have life poured into them. It is written, Thy dead men shall live, my dead body shall they arise. So may it be said of our prayers laid upon the altar. His divine perfection cast upon them and pervading them absorbs and extracts all their imperfection, and they ascend as odors of divine sweetness, perfect and irresistible before the throne of God. That which was lacking in them is far more than supplied. Their want of faith and earnestness and coherence disappears. The simple cry which they contain, the core or kernel within, thus stripped of its vile accompaniments, goes up in melody and power, bringing down at length the full and glorious answer. Christ is magnified in such prayers. Out of our infirmities, there comes honor to him. Fifthly, prayer is often answered in ways we thought little thought of. We know not what we ask, though we think we know it well. We pray for the hastening of the king and the kingdom. Have we considered the judgments which that arrival is to bring? We looked for peace and behold trouble. Yet out of that trouble, peace is to come. For light and darkness has come. Yet out of that darkness shall light arise. We ask for faith and holiness. We get sickness or bereavement or earthly disaster. Yet out of these, the longed for purity and faith shall come. We plead for the reign of the Prince of Peace and low wars and rumors of wars, for the removal of creation's curse and low famines, earthquakes and pestilences in diverse places. Yet out of these are to come the new heavens and earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. We shall one day get all we prayed for, and much more. Let us pray always, and not faint. This is the day of prayer. The day of the answer is coming. Glorious shall that answer be, though perhaps unexpected. Blessed shall it be, yet perhaps terrible in the events which it brings. Our prayers, the prayers of all saints, are lying now on the altar, presented long ago in much weakness and imperfection and unbelief. They are waiting for a fresh application of the divine fragrance, that is to make them irresistible. That fragrance is on its way. It is at hand. The church is on her knees. The burden of her cry is how long. For earth is not improved and its guilt is accumulating. Human evil, in spite of science and literature and art, is growing too great and too hopeless for man to contend with, either for removal or punishment. The unrenewed heart works out its plans of progress and elevation, in defiance of God's sentence against sin, and in contempt of the two divine remedies for the maladies of the human heart, the cross of the substitute and the power of the Holy Ghost. It refines and polishes, and thinks thereby to turn iron into silver, and silver into gold. It charms the adder and imagines that its sting is gone. It fertilizes the soil and boasts that the curse is removed. It reforms states and parliaments. It diplomatizes and musters its armies, and prepares new weapons of war, blind to the will of him who by whom kings reign and princes decree judgment. 
heedless of the eternal purpose or of the one bright issue of all earth's confusion and gloom and anguish. The arrival of the righteous king to break his enemies in pieces with his iron rod and to sway his holy scepter over an earth which, having passed through the fires of judgment, shall be meet for the habitation of the just. And that's the end of the first one. That's Horatius Bonar. And I think that right there is, I think, a very helpful way to read the book of Revelation. Sometimes, uh, today especially, we've we've grown accustomed or perhaps have heard people talk about the book of Revelation in such a way that it's, it's only... Uh, uh, kind of like a curiosity thing about what's going to happen in the future. But there he points out the motivation. Whenever John was writing this letter initially to those seven churches and from Christ through John to writing to God's people here, notice what he was saying. He was saying, listen, no matter how much you may suffer now or in the future or Christians in the future, remember this, your prayers are always on the altar And though they may not be answered now, they will all be answered in God's good time and at the end. And that would have been very comforting to the churches that John was originally writing the book of Revelation to. And isn't that comforting to you and me? Because that shows this book has application to me right now. That our hope and our prayer, whenever we pray to God, sometimes we wonder, am I just talking? Because things don't seem to be happening as we think they should. But God, his ways are above our ways, and he is able to work things in a way that honors the Lord Jesus, that is for our good, and ultimately brings glory to his name and shows forth his love and his justice. It's a mystery here. We, we, we can only go so far. And so we leave those prayers right there on the altar for God And we know that he who promised is faithful and that he will answer our prayers in his good time, in his good way. And it takes faith to believe that that really is the best way. Because let's be honest, we don't understand, do we often, uh, why things happen the way they do. But we do have this promise that he is good and that all things at the end of the day will do and have and will always work for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That's our promise. So we read again, we read through Revelation 8 and 9 and 10 and then eventually in 11, but then we come to this amazing chapter, chapter 12, the last chapter here. And we read here in beginning in verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days." 
Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So we see what happens. Eventually the dragon goes to make uh, war uh, with the woman and with her offspring, right? And so here we see a picture of, of uh, Satan trying to attack the church, attack Christ. And we Christ is the capital S offspring of the woman, Genesis 3.15. Obviously now paralleling, that's what John is pulling from here. And then also, uh, we also though, in Christ, are also the seeds, seed of the woman, uh, those who are in Christ. So this is from Chad Bird, and uh, it's kind of Christmassy as well. So maybe this short meditation here on this section of scripture um, will help us think about this and also in uh, maybe a a way that you hadn't thought about, apply it to Christmas. Uh, It's called When a Dragon Tried to Eat Jesus, a nativity story we don't talk about. This is from Chad Bird. He says, I'm still searching for a Christmas card with a red dragon in the nativity, lurking amidst the cows and lambs, waiting to devour the baby in the manger. None of the Gospels mention this unwelcome visitor to Bethlehem, but the apocalypse does. John paints a seven-headed, ten-horned red dragon onto the peaceful Christmas canvas. You can read all about it in Revelation 12. It's the nativity story we don't talk about, a dragon trying to eat our Lord. The red dragon was standing before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Clearly, more was going on at Christmas than drinking eggnog and kissing under the mistletoe, or even peace on earth. Hark the herald angels sing, a dragon waits to eat our king. December 25th marks the genesis of war, God invading our world, hell's foundations quaking as the ancient terrors of demons awake. The dragon spreading his wings and flying into battle, flames bellowing from his lungs of brimstone and fire. Philip Yancey writes, From God's viewpoint and Satan's, Christmas signals far more than the birth of a baby. It was an invasion, the decisive advance in the great struggle for the cosmos. Silent night, violent night, hell and heaven meet to fight. Wars have been waged over money, property, honor, power, and oil. But this war, the greatest conflict in human history, is over us. The dragon sports many names, the serpent, the liar, the god of this world. But perhaps his most fitting name is Satan. It means accuser. That's what John calls him later in the chapter, the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them day and night before our God. He wields the weapon of accusation. 
And by it, he enslaves us in guilt, shame, depravity, and lies. Each evil is a link in the chains that bind us, and each chain the accuser wraps round and round our souls. His greatest fear is that we will hear that his enemy has come to set us free. So in the little town of Bethlehem, a red dragon swoops in to swallow this child who has come to liberate us from accusation, to make us children of his father, to shatter every chain that binds us to a life of bondage. He must be stopped. He must be silenced. He must be killed. The Christmas story begins the narrative of violence that marks the life of the liberator. The dragon misses his opportunity in Bethlehem, so he hounds our Lord down to Egypt, then back to Galilee. He trails him into the desert with tempting words, and finally, after 33 years of warfare and repeated defeats, he finally wins. The dragon, who failed to devour the child in the manger, swallows the man atop the cross. In so doing, Unbeknownst to this beast, he ate poison. For if anything will destroy an accuser, it is taking freedom into his bowels. At the death of Jesus, there was a great rattling of chains. The links of evil that bound us snapped in two. A world held in bondage to the dragon was, in the death of the Son of God, immediately and irrevocably freed forever from his captivity. It all began in Bethlehem. Unseen by human eyes, hell and heaven battled over us. And heaven in the end stood on the neck of hell and pressed his foot into the throat that had so long accused us. The accuser of our brethren, John wrote, has been thrown down. He was conquered by the blood of the lamb. All the dragon gets for Christmas is a mouthful of shattered teeth fiery lungs flooded with oceans of divine wrath and a sword swinging down from above to chop off the head that spouted accusation. Merry Christmas. The dragon is dead, the baby is alive, and his victory has set you free. That's really good stuff, isn't it? Um, quick, but powerful. Have you ever read Revelation chapter 12 with that image in your mind? And think about now when you read the gospels, take this image with you of Satan, the dragon hounding Christ all through his life in the gospel narratives. And sometimes Satan is oftentimes, right? We know Satan's there tempting Christ in the garden or excuse me, in the wilderness. But think about all the different ways that Christ is, uh, that Satan is tempting Christ and attacking him. Um, in the background in ways we don't see, right? We don't see that in the gospel narratives often. We see demons every so often. We see him tempting Christ in the wilderness. And then we see Satan enters Judas. And those are the explicit instances that we see. But then think about the dragon hounding our savior, this child born to rule, this man grown uh, to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Think about how this dragon is in the background of all that opposition from the Pharisees, from the religious leaders, from, from, the, from, the, from the pagan leaders around everybody. And yet Christ overcomes them by his own blood. That's, that's wonderful. So take this image with you. 
as you think about Christmas this week and in the coming weeks, remember that the dragon has been thrown down because of the baby born in Bethlehem. Lastly, I want to read a little bit of Horatius Bonar here because of the song that is sung then in Revelation 12. Uh, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And this is Horatius Bonar, the heavenly song of victory. He says this, this is a song of heaven, of that heaven from which the dragon had been cast out. It was sung with a loud voice that all in heaven and earth might hear. It is a song of triumph and gladness, like that which is sung over one sinner that repenteth. Yet it is not a song of consummation, as if the whole work was completed in the last battle won. For the dragon is only as down to earth to do terrible things there in his last wrath. But it is a song of progress, another victory won, another advance made, the glorious termination becoming nearer and nearer. Often had such a song been sung. Even at the first promise, still more at each successive unfolding of it, at the covenant with Abraham and again with David, at each prophetic announcement of Messiah, at his birth, at his death, he himself took it up, now is the judgment of this world. At his resurrection, at his ascension, at subsequent events, both in heaven and earth, last of all shall it be sung at his second coming, when the development shall reach its fullness, the consummation be realized, the kingdom set up, and the glory revealed. It is like the feeling of semen at rounding some new promontory which brings them more within sight of home. Like soldiers, after defeating one and another squadron of the enemy's troops and pressing on flushed with victory, like climbers of some mountain range, surmounting first one and then another of the intervening heights that lie between them and the object of their ambition. Thus runs the heavenly song. Now has come to pass the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Let us attend to each of the notes separately. First of all, the salvation. It is the salvation that is here sung of, the salvation of him whose name is Jesus, the Savior. It is salvation, not consisting of one blessing or one kind of blessing, but of many, made up of everything which can be indicated by the reversal of our lost condition. It is not done at once, but in parts and at sundry times, each age bringing with it more of salvation in every sense, unfolding it, building it up, gathering in new objects, overcoming new enemies, occupying new ground, erecting new trophies. But little of it has yet taken effect, an election no more, yet something is doing age after age. At each new development or conquest, a new song is sung. Now is come the salvation. And if these intermediate shouts of triumph be so loud and rapturous, what will be the last of all? Secondly, the power. This is the more common rendering of the word, not strength, as when Christ's miracles are spoken of, or the powers of the world to come. As yet, God's power has not been fully manifested. It has been hidden. Man's power and Satan's have been in the ascendant. The counteraction of and victory over these have not yet been conspicuously revealed. Many trophies, no doubt, it has won. Many enemies it has defeated. Many brands it has plucked from the burning. But the full revelation of its greatness is yet to come. When that day arrives, earth as well as heaven shall rejoice. Now is come the salvation and the power. 
That shall be the day of power. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Thirdly, the kingdom of our God. It is the kingdom, the kingdom of kingdoms, not of Satan or man as now, but of God, nay, our God. Our God, says heaven, our God reechoes earth. God's purpose is to have a kingdom and a king. The original grant or command to Adam involved this, have dominion, Genesis 1.28. He put all things under his feet, Psalm 8.6. Man in the person of the first Adam was declared king with this globe for his dominion. He fell and forfeited his tenure. The second Adam has come in his room and the kingdom of our God is yet to be set up. As yet, it is but the kingdom of man and of Satan. Earth has not acknowledged God, but in the day when God's original purpose shall be fulfilled, shall be heard the loud voice in heaven and earth. Now is come the kingdom of our God. Then shall the church's prayer be answered. Thy kingdom come. Lastly, look at the authority of his Christ. The Christ of God is the full name for Jesus of Nazareth, God's Messiah. He in whom all royal, priestly, judicial, prophetically power is invested. To this Messiah, all power has been given, all authority entrusted in heaven and earth and hell. But now we see not yet all things under him. His authority is in abeyance till the fullness of the time shall come. Then it shall be put forth over all the earth. He shall destroy Antichrist, bind Satan, deliver creation, bring all the nations under his sway as King of kings and Lord of lords. His authority shall be supreme. His throne shall be above all thrones. His scepter shall be acknowledged everywhere. All nations shall submit themselves. Earth shall be as heaven. Then shall the loud voice be heard. Now has come the authority of his Christ. Well, there we go. As you head towards the Christmas season, I think those are some good things to think about and remind ourselves of what we're saved from, the prayers that we pray to him, and the great victory that has been accomplished for us in the cross and the victory guaranteed at the second coming when Christ returns to save those who are waiting for him. Well, I hope you have a good holiday season as we continue through this. we got two weeks left. Let's make the most of it. Enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Take care. God bless.